I am not Pastor Austin. He is still out of the country. He'll be back with us next Sunday. We're excited to have him back to hear everything that he got to experience on this trip and and what he got to hear from the Lord as he was praying and seeking God and doing his daily devotionals in a different setting. And we're very, very excited about that. Today, I'm going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up. Uh, Today, title of today's message is Your Life, Your Sermon. I love preaching. Like, I love preaching. This morning, I was in uh, my, what I call my prayer chair at the house about 7 o'clock this morning, and I was studying, going over my message one more time, and my son came in, and he got up all my face, and he was like, why are you still reading this? Because he went to bed with me studying last night. And I said, because I'm preaching today. I love to preach. I can't wait to do it. And he goes, I don't think anybody wants to hear you preach today. <laughs> You're a sweetheart. Yeah. He said, but I don't understand. Why do, you, why do you do this all the time? Why is Pastor Austin, doesn't he know how to preach? Why does he ask you to do it sometimes? And I said, because I love to preach. I love preaching. It's one of my most favorite things. Preached my ser- first sermon. I was eight years old in kids' church. Why a kids' pastor thought I would be able to preach at eight years old, I don't know. But it sparked something inside of me that I still love doing today. Preaching is one of my most favorite things. I get asked sometimes by people, Erica, how do you do it? Now, they're not asking, like, for me to explain how to write a good sermon. What they're really asking is, how do you stand up in front of people and talk and not want to, like, throw up every time you do it, right? It's like the number one fear in America is public speaking. Did you know that? Like, people are more scared to talk in front of people than to die. That's pretty serious fear. My, my response, though, I'll, I'll tell you my little secret. The way that I continue to do it, to get up in front of people and to share, is because I've had to eat some humble pie. And I came to realize a long time ago that, um, well, you're not going to remember what I say when you leave. And there's some humility that comes with that fact. Now, you're going to hear me kind of like trash talk preaching for a second, and I need to be very clear. Preaching is important. It's a gift in scripture that God tells us to do. It's important to have people who teach us scripture. But for the sake of the sermon today, I need you to hear me say, what I've learned is what I do in this 30 minutes is not nearly as important as what you'll do in the next 30 hours. I I, I learned this lesson over the years when over and over and over again, people come back to me and they'll, they'll quote something I said in a sermon and then like it won't be anything about what I preached. You know, I'll have people occasionally say, remember that one time you pulled two single people out of the audience and married them in church? I do. And they'll laugh about the fact that I did that and who I did it to, Chris Tolson. I, I, I embarrassed him in front of everyone. Uh, it was a fun little thing that I did, but you know what they never remember? That that sermon was about the weight and the heaviness of our marriage vows. What I always want to ask him is like, I know that's a good laugh, but like, is your marriage still living up to its vows? Or, or, or my students, my former students, I get Facebook messages pretty consistently that say, do you remember that time you killed a goldfish and, while you were preaching? <laughs> I did one time accidentally on purpose kill a goldfish while I was preaching. Okay, that did happen. That did actually happen too, actually. Died on the platform while I was preaching. But what they remember is the fact that I killed a goldfish. What they don't remember is the point of the sermon was that they cared more about the life of that goldfish than their friends who were headed for hell. They don't remember that really, really good point that I made. (laughs) They just remember the goldfish. 
or one that happened this week. This was, this was quite fun. I preached in youth a couple of weeks ago, and I told a story I've told in this pulpit before about my horrible, terrible, very good, really bad day. Now, I don't have time to tell this story today. If you want a good laugh at my own expense, come and ask me after church. I'm happy to give you the highlights of the day that ended with a baseball bat in my forehead, okay? That's the kind of stuff that happened. And so I, I use this story as an illustration. I've used it a few times in different sermons, and I preached this two weeks ago in youth, and I used it to preach a sermon I never preached before. And this guy walks up to me. He's heard me preach a bunch of times. I won't throw him under the bus. He comes up, and he's like, Erica, I'm so glad you preached that message again. I just needed that reminder. And I was like, reminder? What are you talking about? And he was like, that message, you know, the one that you preach about your horrible, terrible, very bad day. And I was like, yeah, I use the same story, but I've never preached the scriptures that I preach from today. <laughs> that was the first time. What happened? He remembered the story from a message I preached several years ago, but the point of the message was like pressing through the hard stuff. He didn't remember that part. <laughs> Just my stupid decisions. See, it keeps me humble. To know that when you walk out of this room, uh, you'll forget 50% of what I said within 10 minutes of leaving here. Science studies tell us that a week from now, some of you will remember 10%. So all I can do is talk for 20 minutes, uh, 30 minutes and hope you remember three of them. <laughs> and my real preference is that you remember the three that I want you to remember. But the reality is sometimes people come up and go, that was such a great message on salvation. And I'm like, never, and I didn't preach salvation today. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, that was a great message on forgiveness. I'm like, never said that word from the pulpit, right? Because the reality is the Holy Spirit preaches for us, not the preacher in the platform. And what's more important is what you do with the message of your life when you walk out of this place. You see, it's not about the sermons preached on this platform. It's about the sermons preached through your day-to-day -day lives. Churchill has this quote about public speaking. He says, if you have an important point to make, don't try to be subtle or clever. Use a pile driver. Hit the point once, then come back, hit it again, Hit it a third time, a tremendous whack. Can't you imagine Churchill saying that? <laughs> tremendous whack. I can't. You know, when it comes to the sermons of our lives, that's exactly the point, that we're not supposed to just in passing occasionally reference who Jesus is in our life or, or repost a good worship song every once in a while on our Facebook. No, 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 we're supposed to use a pile driver to nail the point in, to hit it again and hit it again with a tremendous whack until the people around us know the love of Jesus Christ. It's my everyday life's calling to allow people to see who Jesus is through me. Ephesians chapter four, we're gonna read about 24 verses. I love Ephesians chapter four because it has a lot of really good stuff on just living for Jesus, okay? So if you just need a good chapter to be a good reminder on how you're supposed to follow Christ, this is a really good chapter that has some great contact content today. You can preach quite a few sermons from it. I'm not gonna do that today. Though I do have four pages. I'm as close to manuscripted today as I've ever been. I just need you to know that. The spirit of Pastor Austin came upon me. <laughs> He's a manuscriptor. I'm not. <laughs> uh, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to, work, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called 
With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he said, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended, Jesus, is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave us to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to be a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried with every wind and doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by whatever Uh, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance this is in them, because of the blindness of their heart who, being past filling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as in truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you would put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Father, I love you so much today. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and lives. Lord, not that we hear a sermon that's good on this platform, but that we're motivated to preach a good sermon when we walk out this room. God, I pray today that you allow us to hear from your Holy Spirit what it is you're trying to teach us. That every person in this congregation would would grab a hold of the truth that you have for them today. Father, we would leave this place changed for the good so that others can encounter who you are. In your awesome name we pray. Amen. That very first verse there in Ephesians chapter 4 is one of my favorites. It's on a sticky note on a, on a, a, a wall in my house. Uh, it has been for a long time that says to live a life worthy of your calling. I beseech you to live a life worthy of your calling. And I, I, I hope and I pray and I, I ask the Lord regularly, God, help me to live a life that's worthy of the calling you've put on me. Now, that word calling, for a lot of us as believers, we don't understand what that is. In fact, many of you may be sitting there going, I don't know what my calling is. Well, I think scripture makes it really simple. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That our lives each and every day, no matter what our gifts or skill sets are, is a calling to preach the gospel to those who don't do it. Four areas of our life, I feel like uh, we can see in this portion of scripture that challenge us to to preach the gospel through these areas of our life. The first one is this. There's a sermon in your suffering. Now, Paul starts off by saying, I, a prisoner of the Lord. 
You see, at this point in time, Paul was in prison. Paul was under arrest. Paul was experiencing hardship. Paul was going through difficult stuff, and he preaches the gospel anyways. I think the the overall life of Paul, we see like constant hardship and suffering that he goes through, and the loudest sermon he ever preached is the fact that he never stopped preaching. The fact that he allowed his suffering to continue to motivate him, to propel him, to take the next step, to tell the next person so that the whole world could hear the gospel. Paul didn't allow his suffering to stop him. He allowed it to be a platform for others to see who Jesus is. And there's one thing that suffering preaches for us. That is hope. You see, bad stuff is going to happen. And any preacher who stands in front of you and says that bad stuff doesn't happen when you become a Christian is lying to you. Paul's life is an example. Suffering occurs. Stuff will get hard. And I hate that we can't make a promise it won't. It makes it a really easy salvation altar call when you stand up here and say, just come to the altar and all your problems will go away. That's untrue. See, the reality is God is able to be glorified through our weaknesses. God's able to be glorified through our suffering because his goodness can shine through. And our hope that we hold on to through suffering shows the world something it can't see anywhere else. So there's very few things as a church that we have that the world doesn't have. Think about it. Good music, world's got it. Cool lights and sound, world's got it. Know how to run a live stream? World's got it. Know how to give a good talk? World can do that too. They, they even know how to make friends. They even know how to hang out with people. They even know how to give to charity. The world has a lot of stuff that we already have, but the few things it doesn't, one of the most important is hope. Because there is no hope outside of Jesus. There is no reality outside of Jesus. I I said to someone a few weeks ago, if if you don't know this, we've been going through the adoption process and it's hard, okay? And I just, I'm not gonna unpack the whole thing, but it's messy and it's hard. And I said to someone a couple weeks ago, I don't know how anyone who doesn't know the Lord does this because it's so hard. I consistently have to ask Jesus to remind me that he loved me when I was terrible right? That he could love me when I was hurting, that he could love me when I was messy, and when he, that he could love me even when I didn't love him back. Because guys, it's hard. I don't know how, how the world survives horrific tragedies. I don't know how the world survives terrible things without the hope of Jesus, but the sermon in our suffering is how we choose to respond to the suffering in our lives. You see, we don't numb pain, we pray through it. We don't run from hard things. We put it in the hands of Jesus and know he'll help us through. We don't just sit and give up. We trust that God is in control even when it feels like our life isn't. Now, this part of the sermon isn't meant to convict you because the reality is if we're all super honest, we can point back to times in our lives when we suffered and we didn't exemplify Jesus so good. And guess what? The reality is we're all human, right? Uh, uh, Having hope and suffering doesn't mean that you don't experience grief or frustration, or heartache. My mom has been in the hospital for 22 days with COVID. And I'll tell you, there's been some, some days in the last three weeks that I've just gone, God, I'm sick of it. You know, my attitude was not so good. I, I had to apologize to my son because I snapped at him a few days in a row because I was so emotionally just 
frustrated, right? But it's, it's when we recognize those times and go, but I still have hope in Jesus. I don't have to live in the mess. I don't have to live in the attitude. I don't have to allow the grief or frustration or anger to, to defeat me. I can turn to hope and trust that God is in control. She gets to come home tomorrow. Okay. I wasn't supposed to put that on Facebook. So technically, yeah, well. I was doing a little dance during worship. I got that text right before service. So yay, God is good. But we can hold on to hope in the suffering. See, our sermon in suffering is showing hope to the hopeless. Number two, there's a sermon in our relationships. For several scriptures here, you see these words, peace, unity, bearing with one another, one God, one Father, one Spirit. It's, it's talking about this unified spirit among believers. It's, it's re- referencing relationship when it comes to us. Paul is challenging us to live and be as one because I believe Paul understood that the way we treat each other absolutely matters. You see, how can someone understand the true love of Jesus if they can't see us exemplify love with one another? How can someone who's lost ever feel truly loved and included if we don't know how to come into relationship with them in a good and healthy way? The world is watching the way we treat one another, and it matters that we're unified. This portion of scripture was not like when you lecture your kids to stop fighting with their siblings, right? It wasn't that kind of a lecture. It wasn't like, I'm so sick of the bickering. Everybody just stop talking right now, you know? <laughs> like, it, it wasn't about, like, giving God a peace of mind. It was about what the world would see through unity, what we can accomplish when we're all in one spirit, one mind, headed in one direction. It matters how we treat each other. Unbelievers, the lost, the world, is watching two interactions. First and foremost, they're seeing how we interact with other believers. Do we love each other well? I'm going to tell you a really sad story. I was in college, and um, I was at a friend's house with her family, and they got a Christmas card, opened it up, and as soon as the card got pulled out of the envelope, uh, one of the people in the family started singing that song that goes, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you, don't you, don't, I don't actually know the song, How to Lose a Guy, 10 Days, that's in that movie, that's the only reason I know it. Anyway, he starts singing this song, and he's like dancing around with this card, and I'm like, this feels weird. And then somebody else in the family jumps in and they, they literally start spewing hate and toxicity towards this other family that I, I don't know personally, but I knew they were believers. And as I watched this happen, these people who claim to love Christ and one mouth can worship him and another mouth can spew against other believers. I, I'll be really honest. I was pretty strong in my faith, but I stepped back for a second going, I don't think I, I, don't, I, don't think I want anything to do with this. You know what, it began to lead me to start to think about other interactions I had with this families. And other times I've heard them smart off about people and say hateful things and judgmental things about other believers in their church. And, and I stepped back for a second and I thought, I don't, I don't think I want to be around them anymore. Because if they do it to everybody else that they know, what are they saying about me? Now that for me didn't make me leave the church. But I know a lot of unbelievers who did. I know people lost in this world that left because of the way that believers treated each other, because we've focused in on judging each other for not living up to our 
standards or, or we, we've gotten petty about things that don't really matter and we forget that the way we treat each other doesn't just matter for each other's sake, it matters for the world's sake. My mama would say to me when I was a, a little kid, she said to all of us siblings, randomly when she was putting us to bed or telling us goodbye, she'd, she'd say this saying. She'd say, I love you forever, no matter what. Even if you murdered someone and ended up in prison, I'd show up as often as I could and love you anyway. Now, that's a weird thing to say to a six-year-old, right? Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure my mom set out from birth to make sure none of us became murderers, right? The parents are like, that's my number one goal. Like, as long as they don't kill people, we're okay. You know, it wasn't her desire to see any of us go that path. But the point of her, of her love to us was to let us know that regardless of what choices we made in life, she'd love us. And I'll tell you, I've put my mama through some hard stuff, and she has never faltered on that statement. That's the kind of love we should show one another with grace and compassion and understanding because we recognize not only do the the believers in our circle and the people in our church need us to love them, but the world needs to see that we know how to love each other well. There are certain communities of people who can out-love the church, and that's a problem, guys. That's a real problem because guess what? If God is love, then probably people who know God should know love the best. But we can see over and over and over again when tragedy happens in the world, other communities of people will show up and the church is nowhere to be found. How we love each other matters. Not only is the world watching to see how we love each other, they're also watching to see how we interact with them. Do we really love them well? I've heard this saying over and over and over again. People won't remember what you say. They'll remember how you made them feel. Sometimes people quote that to know, like, I need to make you laugh in my sermon so you can remember it was a good time. But what this is actually about is understanding when I interact with someone, the words that come out of my mouth are not going to be nearly as impactful as how I make them feel in the room. Do they feel included? Do they feel seen? Do they feel known? Do they feel cared about? Do I intentionally look for opportunities to love people well? Or am I so focused on my own circle, my own issues that I neglect the people around me? The sermon in my relationships shows the love to the lonely. Third, there's a sermon in your serving. If you go over to verses 12 through 16, it's, it's referencing the body of Christ. And if you're not a Bible scholar, that's okay. In, in all different types of places in scripture, we see ourselves church re- referenced as the body of Christ. He used it as a metaphor that Christ is the head and the rest of us are the body. And it's used to, to help teach that everybody has their part to play. You can't be all hands You couldn't walk. You can't be all ears. You couldn't smell. You can't all do the same thing. And so God gives us gifts and he gives us talents and abilities and and he calls us to do our part. But I love in Ephesians chapter four, that verse 16, where it says, uh, where am I right? Okay. According to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth in the body for the edifying of itself in love. Huh? When every part does its share, it causes growth. 
Now, growth of the body could mean, I think, two different things. It could mean growth as us believers, like helping us be strong in our faith and, and helping us to mature in our faith. And when we serve, we're challenging each other to grow in, a, in our relationship with Jesus. But I think that it's also referencing growth of the body, meaning including more people into the body. But the way it happens, it says, when every part does its share. When every part does its share. We actually see this played out. A really great example is right here on Sunday mornings at JFA. Now, you may not realize this, but there are so many people, 145, I think, is what we saw this week in our little volunteer setting. 145 people it takes to run a week's worth of services around here. 145. Now, you go, well, you know, well, you're just doing that because you want more people on the team. No, 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 no. It's about understanding that every part, that every person that plays a part is making it easier for somebody else to experience the love of Jesus. Let me tell you how. For some people, opening the door in the mornings and saying hello as soon as they come in the room locks them in for the rest of the service. There's research that's done. That somebody welcoming at the door can make them decide this is their church home and it's the place they want to stay. Opening the door and feeling like home confirms that we mean it when we say welcome to the family. So that greeter out there is actually confirming that what Pastor Austin says every Sunday, welcome to the family, is actually lived out in who we are because we make it like home at the front door. It matters when you can walk in the cafe and see a tray full of donuts and coffee. You might not, right? Yeah. Amen. You might not realize just how important that is, but there's something about sharing food together. There's something about a hot cup of coffee when you walk in the door that just feels right and it makes you feel included like you're a part of something. It matters that when somebody for the first time walks in that building next door and drops their kid off, that there's somebody with a smile checking them in at the iPad. That there's, that there's somebody there to high-five their kid and speak to them first. That there's somebody there that, that feels safe and trustworthy. It matters that their kids walk out of the building having known their memory verse. I promise there are some parents that are not happy when their kid gets in the car and says, we played the whole service. Because we don't, just FYI. I said that the last time I preached. We don't play the whole service. We talk about Jesus, right? And so we want parents to feel like not only is their kid being loved and protected and looked after, they're also encountering the love of Jesus. It matters how this platform looks. It matters. It matters that the white squares are on the wall and the lights are turned the right way and the, the presentation, the worship team comes on. Because guess what? Worship is the second most important thing that people look at when they come to a church. If they can walk in the room and they look at the platform and they see it looks excellent, there's just something about it that makes you go, oh, I love it here. Don't these platforms look cool? Right? You notice, right? You're like, I love that. That, that made a difference for me. And that might not seem like it's going to teach somebody to get saved, but it absolutely sets someone up to experience Jesus. Well, Hello. <laughs> Somebody going to heart me on Facebook, right? <laughs> the hearts. I'm just kidding. It matters what we put out there. There's a sermon in our serving. But it's not just what we do here on campus. Because let me tell you guys, if the only time you serve Jesus is here at JFA, we're not teaching you the right stuff. 
because it matters what you do out there. You see, the serving also happens with the homeless man you give a bottle of water to. The serving also happens when you mentor a child at school that's going through a tough time or when you smile at the grocery clerk. The, 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 the sermon and the serving happens when you leave an extra large tip to the waitress that actually wasn't that good because you could tell she was just exhausted. There's a sermon when you choose to show kindness to the sonic car hops, even though you've been sitting there for 37 minutes. <laughs> you laugh, but you better check yourself this week because I know some of y'all I'm being too nice as poor little car hops. They're serving when you choose to give to a local ministry like the Comfort Closet who can reach people you can't reach. There's a sermon in your serving. When we put a hand out to others, we are literally showing exactly who Jesus is. We are coming down where people are and saying, let me give you a helping hand so you can know who Jesus is. The sermon in our serving is how we give help to the needy. Lastly. There's a sermon in the set apart. Verse 24 of that portion of scripture says that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. I'm not going to read. 17 to 24 talks about putting off the old man, renewing your mind and putting on the new man. And then it references this in true righteousness and holiness. Now, holiness, another way to say to be holy is to be set apart. It's, it's, it's a separateness from the world. To be holy is to be more like Christ. To be holy is to be separate from the way that the world does things. And Christ calls us to this separation. That we should look different than the rest of the world. And there's a sermon in that set apart. Here's how. One of the best sermons you can preach is your own testimony. And I love that Mercy was on the set today because it literally like, I'm alive to tell the story. I don't think there's a better song you could sing with this message today. Because the, what that song's saying about the mercy that God's given us, the goodness that he's given us, that I once was an old man, and now I'm a new man. I once was angry, and now I'm a peacemaker. That speaks something to the people in your world. I once was addicted, and now I'm free. That speaks to people who knew you before. I once was depressed, now I'm filled with joy. I once was selfish, now I put others before me. I once was a sleazy businessman, but now I use my platform to help those in need. My mouth was once filthy, but now I speak life. I used to listen and watch trash, but now I fill my heart with godly content. When you take off the old man and you put on the new man, the world sees it. The world sees it. And it's one of the most impactful messages you can preach in your day-to-day life is recognizing there is an old me and there is a new me and I want to live in the new man. Right in between those two scriptures, take off the old, put on the new. It has this sentence, renew your mind. Renew your mind. You see, it's not just talking about changing behavior. Changing behavior is all we did, then that actually is pretty easy to just choose to not. What actually makes the difference is changing our mindset. It's changing the way we see and view the world. Romans 12 uh, verses 1 and 2 is another scripture that references this. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. Hold up. Now we can go all the way back to the beginning. Live a life worthy of my calling. I don't know what my calling is, Erica. Well, that just told you how to find it. It did, right? To test and approve and know what God's will is. I do that by renewing my mind. By changing the way that I see the world. See, knowing my calling starts with changing my thinking. Knowing my calling starts with changing my thinking. I like that this this verse says renewing, renewing your mind. Because I I think it, it, it makes it sound more like a process. It's not like you just wake up one day and you think different. Though that'd be great. That'd be really great. I just, I just told Sherry right before service, like she said, how's the mom thing going? I'm like, I want to wake up one day and just be a good mom. And then I realized that it takes a lot longer than one good night's sleep, which also doesn't happen when you're a new mom. Uh, but it's not just one of those things that happens, right? We don't just wake up one day and we have a new mind and we see the world in a new way. It's a process. This process is called sanctification. It's becoming more like Christ. It's striving to learn and see the world as Christ does. But here's the thing, guys. This is the hard part. Are you ready? Take a deep breath. I I don't mean to offend you, but I kind of do. When you renew your mind, you have to be willing to let go of your beliefs, your ideals, your politics, your worldview, everything you think you once knew, you have to be willing to let it go. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Not even, not your belief on what family's supposed to look like. Not your belief on what work is supposed to look like. Not your belief on what values you should have. Not your belief on how church even works. When you step into relationship with Christ and you truly renew your mind, it's a letting go of the old man, the way I used to think, and it's embracing the new one, asking God to help me have a mind like his. And in that process of renewal, I can become more like Christ as my mind shifts, my life shifts. As my mind shifts, my life shifts. Charity, if you want to come. Holiness is a call to be set apart. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his special people that you may proclaim his praises, proclaim his praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. It's saying you, you who were once in sin and now are in light, grace, heaven, Jesus, all the things, right? You who once were in darkness and now are in marvelous light. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. There is something set apart about you. You were not intended to be like the world. You are intended to be like Christ. And there's a sermon in that set apart. I love that they use the word royal priesthood here because it, it challenged me to think a little bit about what that is, right? Royal priesthood. A couple of years ago, my, myself and my Mimi and my mom all had the privilege of going to London for a vacation. And while we were there, we, of course, went to Buckingham Palace. We got to take a tour of the inside of the palace. Now, man, guys, if you ever get a chance to go to London, take the tour of Buckingham Palace. It's incredible. I mean, she has, there's clothes in there that are older than our whole country. It's insane. You're like, what? We haven't even thought of America yet. And, he, and you have a baby bonnet from then. Why? I just, it's amazing. Okay. It's so amazing. But what happened when I was taking this tour is I began to understand a little bit more of what it meant to be a royal. To be royalty is truly to be set apart. 
There is a holy ideal to the concept. That these, these royals, for their whole lives, they're, they're intended and called and set out to be different than everybody else. I started kind of obsessively studying them, okay? I got really, really stuck on the queen because, well, she's had a job for like a million years and I think that's really cool. And she's just so filled with grace and, you know, there's just, it's just fascinating to think about her life. And so I, I, I started to study her and it turns out you can find blogs on literally everything the royal family does because there's a protocol for everything the royal family does. And it's so different than the way we live our lives. It's so different. They live in the ultimate fishbowl. I mean, you can go and find out why Kate wore such and such dress. You can go and find out how this royal got in trouble from the queen because they wrote the wrong dress. You can go find out what diet they're on right now. You can find out all kinds of things. In fact, I was really, really fascinated. I don't know why, but it really interested me that the queen every week goes to her grandson's house to watch an episode of The Crown on Netflix. Why was that amazing to me? I don't know. It just, I thought it was the, the coolest thing because, because her life is, it's set apart. And there's really no way around it. I mean, if you've studied the life of, of their royalty, there's no way around it. It's just their life. They're born into a world that this is gonna be required of them. They're just set apart. And when we step into relationship with Christ, we're also called to be set apart, to live a life of holiness so the world can see a difference in us. As a young college student, I was a sophomore and I was a part of this group called Chi Alpha. Chi Alpha is kind of like Bible club for college students, like a youth group for college kids on the campus. And I had been invited to be on the leadership team and we were sitting around before the semester started and we we're going back and forth on what to do to reach our campus for Jesus, right? It was reach our campus. And all we were focused on was our service that happened on Thursdays at seven o'clock. And we're just, we're just digging into it. And I have this moment where I'm like, there's thousands of students on this campus. The room where we have service only fits a hundred. Like at no point is that service actually going to reach everyone on campus. And so I just, I, I, I just interrupted everybody in their arguments at one point in time. And I said something, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. I said, Chi Alpha is not Thursdays at seven o'clock. Everybody kind of looked at me like I was weird. Like, of course it is. Yeah, it, it is. It's seven o'clock on Thursdays. And I said, no, no, no. Chi Alpha is not Thursdays at seven o'clock. The people of Chi Alpha meet on Thursdays at seven o'clock. But Chi Alpha is wherever our students are on campus. Chi Alpha happens wherever they are in class. It happens with whoever they're interacting with because Chi Alpha is supposed to be an ambassador of Christ. That's literally what the name means, ambassador of Christ. It's supposed to be a representation of who Jesus is on campus. And if we're in a closed space on campus, preaching Jesus on Thursdays at seven, and that's all we do, we're not ambassadors for Christ. We're a bunch of people who like to hang out together and do weird stuff like play music and sing and listen to somebody talk. JFA, it's not Sundays at 10.30. JFA is where the people of JFA are every day. JFA is at your work and it's in your car. It's in your home when you put your kids down to bed at night. 
JFA is, is at the grocery store and in the bank. JFA is in standing in line in the Walmart and it's eating at Pistol Pats after service today. JFA is not a service that happens once a week. It's a sermon that's preached day after day through the lives of the people who call themselves family here. See friends, the hurting need hope. Do they see hope in your suffering? The lonely are longing for family. Can they feel love through your relationships? The needy are desperate for a helping hand. Do they see Jesus in yours? The lost are looking for answers. Can they see holiness in your lives? Others should recognize a separation between us and them, not to lord over them or to think we are higher or better because guys, we're not. They should see a separateness so they can recognize the difference is one thing and his name is Jesus. The difference is one thing and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to everything. Jesus is the answer in our suffering. Jesus should be among us in our relationships. Jesus is there when we're serving. Jesus is there when we're trying to figure out how to live a holy life. Jesus is there when we fail. Jesus is there when we succeed. Jesus is the sole answer. And the sermons of our lives should preach that every single day. I'm alive to tell that story, not in this building, but to the world that needs Jesus. God, God, help me to live a life worthy of the calling you've put on it. God, help me to live a life that, that exudes who you are. Help me to be a reflection of Jesus. God, as I walk out of this place, let people around me not see me, but see the you in me. God, allow me to be a light in dark places. Allow me to be a peace in chaotic moments. Allow me to be wisdom when someone doesn't know the answers. Allow me to have grace when someone desperately needs it. Allow me to exemplify forgiveness. Allow me to teach people the goodness of who you are, God. Help us to preach the sermons of our lives in a way that honors who you are, Jesus.